All right, go ahead and grab a seat if you will. I think we got more chairs coming in. Um, and if you're still looking for a spot, um, uh, there are certainly some spots over here, these kind of like soft seating cushions over here. And then there's some spots here in the middle. So if you, uh, I, think we're, I think we're okay, we got chairs out. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're gonna be in Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, that's the fifth book of the New Testament for those of you who are not familiar with the Bible. Uh, we're glad you're here tonight. I want to introduce myself. I know some of you are new or newer. My name is Brian Howard. I'm one of the pastors um, here on staff. And, and, and here's what we know just seasonally um, in this ministry. There's a lot of you um, that are either coming into a new season of life, coming out of college, coming into school. Uh, the school year's ended. There's a lot of transition here. And so a lot of new faces. Uh, and in this season, we always just want to make ourselves available. And so uh, if we've not met or, or you'd love to just come say hi, um, back at the end of every service. Uh, I, I've stood out there sometimes. This Tonight I'm going to be standing back by the prayer wall. I uh, would love to get to meet you, get to know you. So if you would not met and you'd love to just have a conversation, uh, man, it'd just be my privilege and honor to get to know some of you and uh, see where you're at on your spiritual journey and encourage you any way I can. And so uh, tonight what we're going to do is week two of a series we started last week. And again, I know some of you are in here for the first time in a while. Uh, and this series we simply titled, Hate What Is Evil and Cling to What Is Good. Uh, and so we kicked this off last week and it really comes out of that Romans 12 verse we just talked about where it says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And what we said at the very beginning of last week is that the reason some of you are stuck spiritually right now is because you have bought into the lie that you're not supposed to hate anything. And some of you have so bought into that lie that you don't even hate your sin. You don't even hate the wickedness in this world. You've actually not made war with your sin. You've made peace with it. And when you make peace with your sin, you will never flourish in the way that Jesus has for you in this world. And so we talked about last week what it looked like to kind of hate what is evil, to hate that wickedness inside of us, but rather cling to what is good. And if you were here last week, again, we used the central metaphor, this picture, this idea of what sin is in our life and what Jesus does for us. Here's the picture, the image we use. It's that sin is a virus that makes us sick, and Jesus is the great physician who makes us whole. So we talked about sin not just as a legal category, not just as a punishment issue, but as actually something that infects us. And when we let it run unchecked, it actually destroys us and it damages others. And so that's what we talked about with, with respect to sin. And I want to continue to tease that metaphor out a little more tonight as we think about the way that sin infects, the way that sin makes us into the type of people who suffer because of our own sin and the sin of others. And I want to do so by wading into an area I know very little about, but I think I know maybe enough to say about this. Uh, and here's a question in the medical field uh, that might just seem really bizarre and random. I promise you it's going somewhere. Here's the question. Uh, what, do medical researchers, what do medical researchers believe is the underlying cause for many chronic diseases? And some of you are med school students, or you were, and you can tell me after if I'm wrong on this, but I know the answer for a lot of people in the health and the fitness space and the medical space, there's this big talk about this one word that actually has a huge impact on all of your bodies, even if you don't know what this is, and that word is inflammation, all right? Now, inflammation might not sound super exciting or dynamic to you, but I promise you, underneath so many diseases uh, associated with chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, arthritis, and cancer is this inflammation. So this tiny little, almost unnoticeable thing going on in your body is the root cause to all these diseases that are causing problems all throughout our nation and all throughout our world. Now, why do I bring this up? Because I think in the medical world, it's really easy to look at these diseases, again, like heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, arthritis, cancer, and say, we got to treat the disease. But here's the problem. If you never get to the underlying issue, the disease is going to keep cropping up. Like you can't just treat the symptoms of something. You've got to get to the root of it and figure out why is it there in the first place. And I think this is the problem for a lot of Christians too. Because let me ask this question in a different way and hopefully you're tracking with the metaphor. What does the Bible say is the underlying cause for your sin? 
Like, why do you not hate what is evil? Why is it that you actually cling to what is evil sometimes and hate what is good? And the answer the Bible is going to give is a simple word, pride. Like right underneath all of your sin, right underneath all of my sin and rebellion against God, there's something deeper than the symptom. The symptom is my rebellion against God. The cause, the root of it is my pride. And tonight I want to talk to you about pride. Tonight I want us to think about pride and humility. Um, Tonight I just want to plead with as many people in this room as I can that you would hate your pride, that you wouldn't make peace with it, that you would make war with it, and that you would fall in love with humility, that you would be the type of person who loves humility and hates your own pride. I I want to show you this tonight through um, Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26 uh, is following the story of a guy named Paul. And if you grew up in church, you knew all about Paul, and you heard about Paul. He was Saul. He became Paul, became a Christian. This is a guy who hated Christians. He was trying to murder Christians. He actually had some of them executed. He was like thrilled to see Christians suffer. And then along the way, God just like meets him in the midst of that and turns his whole life around. And he begins a church planter. He's a preacher. He's a pastor. And he goes out into the world trying to tell people about Jesus. But here's what happens anytime you tell people about Jesus. That confronts the power systems of this world. Well, let me tell you something. The people who have power in this world hate the idea that there's someone who's more powerful than them and his name is Jesus. They hate this. And so what happens in the New Testament book of Acts is Paul is actually arrested. He's put on trial and then he keeps being punted around because he's technically not doing anything wrong. People just want him dead. And so he appeals to Caesar and he's in the Roman judiciary system. And this is where we pick up today in Acts chapter 26. This is his moment in court. Like this is his moment before the guy who could put him to death to plead his case. And I want you to see the case that Paul, who once hated Christians and murdered them, and now has become one, is going to plead. So here's his day in court. Acts chapter 26, verse 1, it says this. Then Agrippa, this is the king, the ruler, the person who has authority, said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. In other words, defend yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. And this is not part of the sermon. It is totally free. It is just a great comfort to me as a preacher that Paul uses his hands when he speaks, right? It just brings me great joy to see him do that, right? That's, again, not part of the sermon at all. Just enjoy that. All right, verse 2. He says, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. So so again, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish uh, people are are accusing him of something here. And so when it says of the Jews, what it means is like literally there's like a group of Jewish men who are leaders in the area, who are powerful people who are accusing him of something. It says, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all of the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So he begins his speech and he says, listen, I'm Jewish, you're Jewish, they're Jewish, we're all Jewish, so would you just hear me out for a second? He goes, would you just listen to me patiently? Like the very beginning of Paul's speech is a call to them. He is calling them into something. What he's calling them toward is actually humility. What he's calling them toward is that you would listen to me patiently. He is calling them toward humility. And as we think tonight, I want us to consider this real truth, that that when we fail to do this, like the failure to listen patiently is a sure sign of pride in your life. Like you lacking the capacity to listen to people patiently, slowly, carefully, to actually hear the words coming out of their mouth and the intent behind it. The failure to listen patiently is a sign of pride, but hear me on this. The willingness to listen patiently is a sign of humility. That's what you need to understand. 
But like pride and humility isn't about like how much you self-promote yourself or what you do on social media. Pride and humility plays out in every conversation you have ever had ever. Like it happens every day to me around 5.30, I get home from work. I go in the door, I'm hanging out with my wife. The kids are playing on the ground, it's chaos. And we try to talk to each other about our day. Now here's what I've noticed in my wife, like between me and my wife, there's this great wonderful thing that happens that happens with a lot of husbands and wives where when she asks me about my day, I begin with 9 a.m. and march her through the calendar, okay? I'm like, this is the first meeting, and then the second meeting was terrible, but the third was better, right? I just go sequentially through my day. She doesn't think that way. So when I ask her about her day, she does not go to the order of the events in the day. She goes to what was most emotionally powerful in the day. And she starts to walk me through what happened and then how she feels about it and then how she feels about how she feels about it, right? Like we go down that rabbit hole. And there's times where I just heard, oh, that happened. And then she's sharing how she feels and then how she wished she didn't feel that way, but she does feel that way. And you know that tension? And I stopped listening after I figured out what happened. And this is the problem. <laughs> And I'm not saying this because this is good. I'm saying this because that's me being prideful, right? That's me being like, well, I don't communicate that way. Therefore, you shouldn't, right? That's why marriage is like this wonderful, sanctifying thing. What? Because what do I not do? I'm not listening patiently. And like in that moment where I'm not hearing my wife and hearing her heart and hearing what's going on, that's pride in me. Like every time we don't hear, like if you go home to your roommates tonight and you all are hanging out and they're just talking about their day and you just kind of like don't listen to it because you don't really understand what it means that they got into the honor society of their school or they got that little promotion at work or they're doing, like you don't really care and so you're not really listening, that is pride within you. Like when you will not listen to your friends patiently, that's pride. Like some of you live with your parents and you have tuned them out completely. And I actually think some of you are missing out on profound wisdom that your parents have to offer you because you think you've already heard it before. And so you've stopped listening to what they're actually saying. You've just got a narrative about what your dad always says, so you don't listen anymore. Or you've just got a picture of what your mom thinks, so you don't even need to hear it anymore. And you walking in the failure to listen patiently is you walking in a kind of pride that will ultimately destroy you. Listen, who should we be? We should be the type of people who are willing to listen patiently to one another. Uh, like, hear me, we'll get into this later in the sermon. I want you to be the type of people who listen patiently to people who vehemently disagree with you on things. And we live in a culture right now where it's like, you don't disagree, I'm not even going to listen to you. And so we're not even debating, we're not even arguing anymore. We're just like hearing like you're on the other side of political aisle or the other side of the theological aisle. And so we don't even listen to each other. And that's just pride run rampant in our culture. What do we want to be? We want to be the type of people who are willing to listen to what the other person is actually saying. Because here's what I know. You have been in conversations. I have been in conversations this week where I'm sharing about someone. And the person doesn't actually listen to what I say. They just heard a word, and then they're sharing some story that's even better than my story. They're not even listening. And I know how terrible that feels. May I never inflict that on other people. Like, may I always repent when I have that kind of pride. Like, could you imagine what would happen in your family if you, if you listened to one another patiently? Like, what would happen between your siblings if you actually got together with them and just said, hey, tell me about everything going on in your life? And instead of just, like, chiming in with your own story or telling them how you've actually suffered more, you just listen like, could you imagine what would happen in our church if that happened, if we listened to one another patiently? So like after church tonight, when you talk with people, instead of like doing the listening thing, but you're actually kind of scanning the room to see if that girl is, like, you know, like, no, like if you actually listen to the person rather than scanning the room to see if there was a better conversation to have, but you said, I'm just going to be in with this. Like what would happen? And then just like, Lord, help us. Imagine what would happen to our nation if we did this. If there was like disagreements, but people like carefully, thoughtfully listen, like how many divisions would that heal? Again, Paul begins his whole defense and says, I need you to listen to me. And I want you to listen patiently. He's calling them toward humility. Verse four says, the Jewish people all know the way I live since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, 
They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now because of my hope in God that he has promised our ancestors, I am on trial today. This is the promise that our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. And then it says in verse 8, why? Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I don't think this is a rhetorical question. I think Paul is getting up before them saying our whole religion, the whole Jewish faith is based on the idea that God will rescue, God will redeem. On the last day, God will raise up. So he's going, why would any of you consider it incredible or ridiculous or absurd that Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead? This is the question he is trying to ask. And Paul is asking that question because he's actually trying to understand his opponent. He's actually trying to understand the people who are accusing him. He's actually trying to understand what's going on in their minds. And again, I think this is instructive toward us when we think about the people in our life and in our world who disagree with us. Uh, Like, again, I just think one of the things that's run amok in our culture is this kind of prideful, not listening, you and I don't agree, and so therefore we can't possibly be friends. And Paul has a totally different approach here. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to resolve to be a person who understands before you criticize, who just understands who understands before you criticize. Like um, from time to time, I do this thing on my Instagram where I'll just do a little question and answer. And uh, I do a bunch of questions and answers and I put it out there and some are pretty like, you know, whatever, like where's your favorite coffee? And I'll say Panera and people are like, oh, that's great. You know, like whatever, but I'll do that. And sometimes I'll put out like opinions or thoughts or or, like biblical perspectives that are actually kind of controversial. And so sometimes people will DM back and be really upset about that. And here's what I've learned. I hope you've learned this too. Like DMs are never the place to settle anything ever, ever, right? Like ever, right? And so from time to time, I'll, I'll see this and I won't know the person. So I don't have any idea how to connect, but sometimes I know the person. Uh, and so what I've done recently is I've just offered, hey, I think this would be a better face-to-face conversation. Don't you think? And I'll try to get together. And I did this recently. I got together with this person who was so angry about what I posted. And we sat down and we talked for hours about the subject. And you know what happened by the end? We still disagreed. And sometimes we think the story is, well, if we could just talk, we'd realize we all believe the same thing. That's a lie. That's not true. If anyone's ever convinced you, like, everyone's on the same page. No, they're not. But you know what happened at the end of this conversation? I realized that he believed what he believed because he actually has thought it through. And he's a good dude who I think is wrong. And yet he's a good man. And he thinks the same about me. So what happened? We sought to understand one another before we went in and criticized. And the next time I criticize someone who holds the position this guy has, I'm going to have to recognize that there are sincere people who disagree with me. Listen to me. Walking in humility doesn't mean we never disagree. Again, some people think humility means I'm never going to have a strong opinion. I'm never going to be clear. I'm only ever going to say, well, who knows? Only God knows. Like, no, you can have an opinion and you can disagree. Listen, walking in humility means we seek to understand first. We seek to understand first. I want to know why you think what you think before I jump in and criticize it. Like in in order to do this, let me give you four phrases, four phrases to stop saying, four phrases that indicate when I say this, that I am walking in a kind of pride that has not understood the person I'm talking to, has not understood my opponent. Number one, I can't or I don't understand how anyone could believe blank. Anytime I utter that phrase, I am admitting that I am the one who is in need of an education. Every time I utter that phrase, I am admitting that I am the ignorant one. I don't understand how anyone could believe blank. I don't understand how anyone couldn't believe that climate change isn't real, that we shouldn't forgive student debt. I don't understand how anyone doesn't think the rich should pay their fair share. I've heard all of these phrases in the last month. You know what that means? 
If you have uttered something like this, it means you are the one who needs an education. I don't understand how anyone could believe that pineapple belongs on pizza, right? When you say that, it shows you are the one who needs to go talk to someone who believes that. Go talk to someone because someone obviously believes it. And if you're saying, I don't understand, you're the one who needs the education. Number two, I don't understand how anyone could support blank. I don't understand how anyone could support higher taxes, lower taxes, free speech, hate speech, anything. I don't understand how anyone could do that. Like the most controversial issues of our day. Like what's in the news right now? Like we're talking about abortion, right? And if you've just kind of come to this place where you go, I don't understand how anyone could be pro-choice. I don't understand how anyone could be pro-life. If those words have ever tumbled out of your mouth, it means you have not spent the time talking to someone who is one of those things. Because when you sit down and talk to them, you recognize they're not the monster that the media has painted them to be. They are sincere people who believe sincere things. And I disagree with one side. Like, again, I I just disagree so deeply. And yet I've just trained myself. I've I've resolved in my heart. I am not going to be the type of person who never talks to people who disagree with me on issues that I'm passionate about. And I want the same for you. So like literally on the abortion debate, if you have gotten to the place where you don't understand how someone could possibly disagree with you, I just want to plead with you in the next six months, get with someone, buy them a cup of coffee, ask them the question, really dig into that. Don't seek to win the debate, seek to understand. Number three, the phrase to get rid of, I don't understand how anyone could not. And then you just fill in anything you want, anything that you value, anything that you think is important over the midst of COVID. I just remember hearing so many times, how could anyone not protest the COVID lockdowns? How could anyone not wear a mask to protect their neighbor? How could anyone take a vaccine? How could anyone not take a vaccine? It was all of these things. How could anyone not do the thing that I've so easily and evidently put it it out in my life? And I want us to be the people who say, you know what? I'm going to try to understand how people could not value the things I value. And then finally, let's just commit in this election year to never use this phrase. I don't understand how anyone could vote for a Democrat, a Republican, for Donald Trump, for Joe Biden. If you've gotten into this little cocoon where you can't possibly understand how anyone would vote for someone you didn't vote for, it's a problem. It's pride. And it's something that needs to be fixed in your life. It doesn't mean you have to vote for who they vote for. You don't even have to agree with their methods. You don't even have to agree with their arguments. But may we never get to the place where we can't possibly even understand tens of millions of people in our nation. Because here's something I realized. Like, if we're called to disciple people, we can't also disdain them. Like, if we're called to evangelize people, we can't also hate them. We can't have compassion and contempt for people at the same time. We need to decide, okay, if someone disagrees with me on this issue, I'm going to love them. Listen, I need us to understand that the prideful person assumes only ignorant people will disagree with them. That's what a prideful person assumes, that the only reason you disagree with me is because you need to educate yourself. Heard that phrase, right? Go educate yourself. Because obviously the only reason you don't agree with all the things I agree with is because you're stupid and you're ignorant and you don't know anything. But listen, the humble person that assumes that even well-informed people will disagree with them. That's the type of people we want to be. Like, let us always have that posture, even here in this church. Like, if you've somehow come into this church just assuming everyone basically agrees with you, you haven't met enough people here, all right? Like, we are all over the place at this church. We are all over the map. And yet we want to be the type of people who ask questions, who listen, and allow that person to explain. We want to understand first. It goes on this way in verse 9. It says, Paul speaking again. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. Remember, Paul is persecuting and murdering Christians. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
Many a times I went from one synagogue to another and had them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Like, I love that phrase. Paul got so obsessed with destroying Christians that he went to foreign cities just to hunt them down and to murder them. Uh, Like, here's what happens to Paul. Paul is so convinced he's right. Paul is so convinced that no one could possibly believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Paul is so caught up in his own mind, he doesn't understand why anyone would possibly believe in Jesus that he believes it is the right thing to do to murder people for believing in Jesus. And here's what I want you to understand. This is not unique to Paul. This is true of every time, in every age, of every person. Listen, the worst human rights abuses are always rooted in pride. The worst things, the things that horrify you about human history, the things that horrify you in the news are always rooted in pride. Let me give you seven examples. Number one, racism is a species of pride. What does racism say? My race is better than your race. My people are better than your people. My skin color is better than your skin color. It is a species of pride. Sexism is a species of pride. My gender is better than your gender. Men are better than women. Women are better than men. This is a species of pride that says my type of person is better than your type of person. Listen, abuse is a species of pride. And if you have endured abuse, you have endured a person who thinks they are better, who thinks they are stronger, and who thinks they deserve to get to hurt you for whatever reason, and it is driven from pride. Abuse is a species of pride. As we looked last week at the first murder in the Bible, murder is a species of pride. Murder, the idea that I actually get to take your life, says I have the authority that God alone says he has, that I can take your life in any moment I want. Murder is a species of pride. Listen, oppression is a species of pride. Like any time throughout human history you see oppression, what you're seeing is one people group who think they get to dominate another people group because they're better. And then finally, listen, genocide is a species of pride. Like if we want to pretend that doesn't exist in our world, you can close your eyes to it, but it's happening, right? And it's happening in different places. And where does this come from? Genocide is this idea that I get to destroy those other people because they're not worthy of me. And finally, terrorism is a species of pride. Like whatever kind of terrorism, it doesn't matter who does it for what reason, it says my ideology is so correct that those people deserve to die for not believing in it. Again, this is where Paul's pride drove him. This is why I want you to hate your pride, because it leads to destruction, Pride is not just something where you're a little too puffed up and a little too into yourself and you self-promote a little too much on social media. That is not pride. Pride is this deep, dark, gross thing inside all of us that drives us to believe we can actually harm other people. It goes on this way in verse 12. It says, on one of the journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and all of my companions. We fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, this hard for you to kick against the goads is an idiom um, in this language, okay? It simply means you're making things hard on yourself. Idioms just mean words and phrases that don't really mean, like when we say it's raining cats and dogs, no one's like, what kind of dog? You know, like that's not what it is. It's like, a, it's an idiom. It's a phrase. That's what's saying. He said here, Jesus is going, Paul, why, why, are you, why are you wrecking your life? Why are you letting your pride destroy not only others, but your own life? And so what does Jesus do? I love this picture of what Jesus does. Paul is so proud. He's riding on his horse. He's got it all together. And Jesus goes, get on the ground, right? And he throws him to the ground, literally. But here's what I need you to know. Why does Jesus throw him to the ground? Is it because he hates Paul? No, it's because he loves Paul. He loves Paul so much and sees him walking in his destructive pride that he chooses to humble Paul. And I want us to know this happens all throughout the Bible. I've said it this way, that God humbling and raising people up is a normative pattern in the scriptures. 
Meaning this happens all throughout the Bible. God sees people walking in their puffed up arrogance and pride and he casts them down to the ground so that he can raise them up later. And we won't spend too much time. We could spend all night kind of thinking about how God raises up and humbles individuals. But let me give you 10 ways that God might be humbling or raising up you. I won't won't spend too much time on this. But here's 10 ways God humbles people. Sometimes he removes a position. So you once had a position of power or prestige and he just says, I'm gonna take that away for a season. He reduces possessions like he literally takes away something, your car, your phone, your shoes that you were so proud of. It was such a piece of pride for you. You were so proud of your new shoes and then they got scuffed up. And okay, now God's saying, I'm gonna take that away from you, right? I'm gonna take away this thing you value so much. Requiring pain, changing place, moving is always a humbling thing, right? Because now you don't even know directions. You don't even know where to go. You have to turn on Google Maps just to get to McDonald's, right? You're not even sure where things are up or down. When he moves you, he changes your place and he humbles you. He disrupts plans, he diminishes power, he requires patience, he allows problems. Like I need some of you to know God allows problems in your life to humble you and make you depend on him. Like I know some of you don't wanna hear that because you think God only solves problems and only makes your life easy, simple, and comfortable, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is going to allow problems in your life, not because he hates you, but because he loves you and wants you to be a non-prideful, humble person who believes and trusts in him. God does this. He, he stalls progress. He requires prayer. I think about this all the time. The fact that God knows everything on your mind, but still wants you to tell him. Why? So that you have to humble yourself before him. So you do not become this kind of prideful creature who gets everything you want just because God knows it's on your heart. Again, there's so many things I could talk about. There's a million ways God humbles us. These are just literally nouns that begin with P, okay? That's it here. Like that's what's on the screen and that's how God disrupts. Um, so what's my point? That God, if God loves you, he'll humble you. Here's what he does for Paul, Saul. He's going along, he's walking in his pride and God says, no, 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 get on the ground. I gotta humble you. You've got to know that you are prideful and you are walking in a destructive pattern. And I will bring you low, not because I hate you, but because I love you. And some of you have been brought low in this season of life. And I need to declare over you on the authority of the word of God. It is not because the Lord, our God, hates you. It is because he loves you. And his intent is to raise you up in due time if you would trust him in that. Verse 15 goes on this way. It says, then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, the Lord replied. So here's the sign of someone who's humbled. What is Paul doing now? He's not making statements. He is asking a question. For the first time, he is asking a question. He's not just declaring these Christians, we gotta kill them. Finally, he actually asks a question. He shows he doesn't know everything. He goes, who are you, Lord? And then I want you to notice what he addresses this individual as. He addresses this individual as Lord, as Lord. Now in the New Testament, when you see the word Lord in the Greek language, that word is the Greek word kurios. Kurios means the word translated into Lord. And so many times when we see Lord in the Bible, we just think it's another word for God. And it can mean God, but literally the word Lord or Kurios means king. It means master. It means the one who is in charge. When we say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Kurios, we're not just saying Jesus is God. We're saying that Jesus is in charge of our lives. He is the master of our lives. Not because we make him that or we declare him that, but because he already is. Well, like from time to time, we'll do a gospel invitation. In fact, tonight, we're going to do one. We're going to call some of you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But I've heard preachers say words like this. Tonight, I want you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Can I be clear with you? You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. He already is the Lord of everything. 
That's what Jesus is. He's the king. He's the resurrected one. He's in charge. You don't get to make him king. He already is king. You confess it. You acknowledge it. You bow your knee to the kingship of Jesus. You declare, like we sang earlier, all hail King Jesus. That's what you do when you see Jesus. And here's the problem. That a prideful person, prideful people want Jesus to be their advisor. They want Jesus to say some nice things, some comforting things. They want some good advice from Jesus. They want to like call up Jesus when they're in trouble and say, Jesus, what would you do in this circumstance? Could you work something out? But the problem is anytime Jesus actually claims authority over some place of their life, they don't want to cede. They don't actually want to listen to Jesus. So when Jesus says, hey, if someone wounds you, you're actually supposed to go forgive them. You're like, oh, no, thanks, Jesus. I'm good. Because he's your advisor, not your king. When Jesus says you're only supposed to sleep with someone who's your spouse. Yeah, it gets quiet and we're uncomfortable because... We want Jesus as our advisor, not a king. When Jesus says, if you hold on to all your money and give none of it to the poor, you are actually going to suffer. You're the one who suffers. We don't like that because we want Jesus as an advisor, not a king. See, prideful people and prideful, the pride inside of myself wants Jesus to be my advisor. I want Jesus to be the one who tells me some nice things that I can choose to do or not. But humble people recognize that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Lord. He is the kurios. He is the master, which means as a humble person, I just go, okay, Jesus, if you said it, I'll do it. I may not like it. I may not understand it. I may not even feel like doing it, but my emotions aren't king. Jesus is king. My opinion isn't king. Jesus is king. Culture isn't king. Jesus is king. Jesus knocks Saul to the ground and Saul looks up and goes, who are you, Lord? In other words, you're in charge. You tell me what to do. And Jesus is more than happy to do exactly that. Verse 16, Jesus says, now get up right? What does he do? He humbles people and then he raises them up. Get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. I will rescue you from the people or from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Uh, Like in other words, he knocks Paul to the ground and raises him up, not for Paul's sake. Like don't miss how you hear me. God doesn't humble you and then raise you up for your own fame and your own glory and your own goodness. God humbles you and raises you up for his own glory. That's what God wants to do in your life. So if you're in this place where you're like, God, humble me so you can make me popular, famous, rich, and comfortable. God's like, no thanks, I'll keep you down. But once he raises you up, he raises Paul up for what? So that he can declare forgiveness of sins, that people will go from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, from sinful to forgiven. Like in other words, Paul is going to understand because Jesus told him how big of a deal sin is. And I need us to understand that in our pride, it is so easy for us to think that sin is no big deal, that it's an old-fashioned, silly, fundamentalist phrase, but it's not. Like I want us to understand this, that prideful people seek to justify their sin. They seek to tell us why their sin is no big deal. It's not hurting anyone. It's just, between, it's just me. It's not hurting anyone. No one's ever going to find out. It's not that big of a deal. Everyone's doing it. I'm only human. How could you blame me? I was tired. I was hungry. It was a rough day. We weren't doing so well, so we just went and did that. Listen, prideful people seek to justify their sin. Do you know what humble people do? Humble people seek to repent of their sin. That's what a humble person does. See, when I seek forgiveness and when I repent before my God, what I'm confessing is what I did was wrong. Like, you know what repentance is? Seven words. If you're writing down notes, here's seven words that define repentance. Seven words. God is right and I am wrong. That's repentance. 
Repentance is, God, you were right, I was wrong. There's no qualifiers. There's no like, God, you were right. But as you know, Tuesdays are long days for me. And so sometimes, you know, like, there's no qualifier there. To repent in the, 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 the image is this. I'm going this direction. I plant my foot in the ground. I turn around and I go the opposite way. Repentance isn't feeling bad. Repentance is changing your life. This is what humble people do. They seek to repent of their sin. They recognize, yes, I'm a sinner, and yes, I will probably sin again, but I'm going to own that before my God and repent rather than justify why it's not really that big of a deal or that big of a problem. The passage goes on this way in verse 19. It says, so then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. For those, for, for, uh, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. We're going to skip down to verse 28. It says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? So I love this whole scene. Paul is standing up in the courtroom trying to plead for his life so they will not murder him. And the judge hears this whole sermon that Paul is giving and goes, Wait a second, are you trying to convert me right now? Are you trying to make me a Christian? He's like, I could put you to death right now. Is that what you want to do? And in our day and age, you might expect Paul to be like, no, 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 no. You live your truth, I'll live my truth. I, I, don't, I don't want to shame you. I don't want to embarrass you. I love Jesus. You don't. It's all cool to each their own. I don't want to be judgmental because the worst thing in the world to possibly be is judgmental. And that's the thing I don't ever want to be. We can judge judgmental people, but we can't be judgmental, right? That's the ethos of our age. That's how Paul might think. That's how you might think. That's how we all might think. But here's what Paul actually says in verse 29. Paul replies, short time or long. I don't care how long it takes. I pray to God that not only you, but all of you, in other words, judge, yeah, you, but everyone here will become exactly, or, or will be, may become what I am, except for these chains. <laughs> like what does Paul say? You want me to become a Christian in such a short time? Paul goes, I don't care if it's short or long. Judge, all of you, I want you to become exactly what I am, which is born again by the Spirit of God, which is forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, raised to the fullness of new life, that you would have hope and confidence and faith in the future, that you would know that there is a God who loves you, redeems you, and calls you by name. That is what Paul wants for everyone in that courtroom. And hear me tonight, that is what I want for all of you. Like, I want you to have that. I want you to be exactly as I am, not because I'm special. There's nothing special about me. I just want you to know the God who is special, okay? I want you to know that God. I want you to know that forgiveness. I want you to wake up tomorrow morning knowing that there is a God who has called you, who has redeemed you, who has equipped you, whose spirit fills you. That's what I want for you. I want you to have purpose. I want you to have peace. I want you to know that there is a God who has something more from your life than just trying to get through each day. That is what I want for you. This is what Paul wants what Paul wants for them and what I so desperately want for you is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. I want you to know the fellowship of his suffering. I want you to know that this world is not all that there is, that there is a hope that Jesus will raise us on the last day. I want you to have the confidence I have tonight that if I go home and die tonight, I will wake up in glory forevermore. That's the confidence I have. In this life, in the next life, wherever it is, I want you to have that confidence tonight. And for some of you, I want you to have that confidence and begin it this way. I want you to understand that in order to have that kind of confidence that a right relationship with God begins with humbling yourself. That's how we begin a relationship with God. A relationship with God begins with this confession. God, you created me. I didn't create myself. God, you designed the universe. I didn't design the universe. You get to define reality. I don't. You get to define right, wrong, good, and bad. I don't. That's humbling yourself. Humbling yourself is, God, I admit that I'm a sinner who's rebelled against you. And despite my best efforts, I can't live up to the standard of my own life, much less your holy standard, God. I admit and I confess that God is holy. 
When we were singing earlier that God is holy, we sang that over and over again, we are confessing that God is utterly different than us, that he is morally perfect, that he is eternally glorious, and when I confess that God is holy, I'm confessing that I'm not, right? This is me humbling myself. And tonight, I just want to invite so many of you in this room to humble yourself before God, to get into a right relationship with God because you've humbled yourself before him. Again, going back to this image of sin as sickness, um, maybe some of you have experienced this. Some of you are like really in tune with your bodies. Um, and when you're sick, you know it. And when you're sick, you like know the steps you're supposed to take and you go through the process and you get healthy soon. Others of you are more like me. Like when I get sick, I'm in denial for about six days, okay? I'm like, no, no, I'm not sick. I just, it's just allergies, right? Like I always love to be like, it's not sickness. I just have morning voice, right? Like I just, like I tried to deny it for so long. I'm like, I'm not sick. My wife is like, you're definitely sick. I'm like, I, you are a liar. I am not sick, right? And I just like walk in this kind of pride that's like, Brian Howard doesn't get sick. That's for weak people. You know, like I do this and some of you know exactly what this is like. It's like, why don't you just go to the doctor? Why don't you just admit that you're you're not feeling well like every other human being has ever felt. Why don't you just do that? And the answer is because I'm prideful. And the same thing is true spiritually. Do you know that the only type of person Jesus will not make well is the person who doesn't think they need to get well? The only type of person Jesus won't heal is the person who's too prideful and arrogant to even think they need healing. And tonight I want to invite you to say, God, I need healing, not because I'm perfect, but because I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I need you. Because when I go to the doctor and they actually give me medication, it heals my body and I'm made whole. And when you go to the great physician, he changes you with his grace. He calls you by name. He forgives your sins. He raises you from death to life and he makes you whole. That's what you got to do. But the only way that happens is if you choose to hate your pride. You've got to hate your pride more than you love it. You've got to hate that pride and you've got to cling to what is good. You've got to do what the scriptures say in 1 Peter 5, where it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty right hand, that he might lift you up in due time. You will never have a right relationship with God until you do that. Once you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will raise you up. But it's got to start with you admitting, God, things aren't perfect. Things aren't the way they should be. Things are falling apart. I've sinned. I've rebelled against you. Listen, that's true for someone who's never put their faith and trust in Jesus. But let me speak to some of you who used to be on fire for the Lord. You used to be walking with Jesus. You used to be in the word. You used to hate your sin, but now you've kind of fallen in love with it. You used to make war with your sin, but now you've made peace with it. You used to love the word of God, but now your Bible's collecting dust on the shelf. You're not even sure where it is right now. There's a group of you in that room who have just slipped into this area. And here's the beautiful thing. This verse applies to you too. When you humble yourself and say, God, I used to be in a good spot with you, but I'm not anymore. God, would you save me? Would you rescue me? Would you reroute me? God, tonight I repent of my sin. I'm going a different direction. When you do that, he will surely raise you up. Like tonight, I want to invite some of you to do that too. I just think there's a whole group in this room that somehow this semester, this year of college, the last two years of COVID just threw you off your game. But here's the beautiful thing. The only thing standing between you and the wholeness that Jesus wants for you is your pride. And tonight, I want to call you to hate it, to make war with your pride so that God might raise you up. Here's what I want to remind you. Mark chapter 2 says this. Our band will make their way up. It says, Jesus said this. He said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but to those who are sick, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Like, this is what Jesus says. Uh, again, tonight, I just want to invite some of you to like respond and say, I've just been wandering in my own sin. I've been loving my sin, not hating it. And tonight, I want to invite you to respond. And if you're like, uh, but I don't want to be like gross. I don't want God to know how gross I am. Jesus is like the whole point of me coming is that you're sick. I'm a doctor and I can help. And the only thing standing in between you and the healing God wants to do in your life tonight is your pride. So tonight, I want to invite some of you for the first time to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ.
You've been wandering, you've been thinking, you've been doing all sorts of things, but there's a God who sees you, knows you, and wants to forgive you. He has forgiven your sins through the cross of Jesus. He offers you new life for the resurrection. Tonight's the night. You've been on the fence too long. Now's the time. You're all in with Jesus. You don't have to understand everything about Jesus. You just have to confess that he is in charge and he is the one who saves. And then some of you have been with Jesus. You've known Jesus. You've walked with him, but you've wandered. You've drifted. You just know it. Like I say it, and you're just like, how does he know? It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit convicting your heart right now. And tonight, I just want to invite you right now to say, you know what? I've been drifting, and I'm going to confess it. I'm not going to let my pride get in the way of this. So I want to invite you all across this room just to close your eyes. Bow your heads. Take a moment. Take a deep breath. May we do what the psalmist says in Psalm 51. It says, Lord, would you see if there's any wicked way in me? Like there's actually this examination of our heart where we go, God, like, have I been drifting? Have I been loving my sin? Am I actually clinging to Jesus or am I clinging to my sin? Do I actually hate my sin or in some ways do I hate God's word? Do I hate his commands? Do I hate his presence? I don't know where you're at tonight. I just want to call some people to repentance. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer. It's not a secret, special prayer. It's just calling out to God. And if you tonight are saying, I need to repent either for the first time or for the first time in a long time, come back to Jesus. Just pray that with me in the quietness of your heart. Say, God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that you made me, you loved me, you created me. And yet I turned my back on you. And God, tonight I forsake all that. I forsake my sin. Maybe tonight, God, I hate my sin. And I love and cling to your son, Jesus. God, I need your healing. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your presence back in my life. God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. Save me. Heal me. Redeem me, I pray. Now all across the room, if you just prayed that prayer, um, I just want to invite you um, to recognize that here in this room by opening your eyes and looking straight at me on three, which is just one, two, three, look at me. People all over this room. Honestly, if you're looking at me right now, I'm so incredibly blessed because every person who's looking at me right now just overcame this level of pride. Says, I don't want to be outed as the one who has to repent. I don't want to be outed as the one who has to come back to Jesus. I don't want to be outed as the person who's been drifting. But that moment where you just overcome your pride that stands between you and Jesus, you and what God has for you, that's the moment where God starts to do great things in your life. And here's what I need you to know. If your eyes are open, you're looking straight at me. It's not everyone in the room, but there are people and you're looking straight at me. I want you to know that God loves you. God sees you. God forgives you. And his grace is not just a little bit. It's not even a lot of it. It's unlimited to you. Like that's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. The reason you're repenting right now isn't because of God's wrath. It's because of his kindness. He is kind to you. And so across this room, once again, if you're looking at me, I want you to keep your eyes open because I'm going to ask you to do something. Again, I've said the only thing standing in between you and the healing Jesus wants is your pride, your arrogance that doesn't want to look like the person who's drifted from God. And so in just a moment, I'm actually going to ask those of you who are looking at me and want to repent tonight to do so publicly, to stand in this room. I'm going to ask you to stand on your feet in just a second, not to embarrass you, but so you can take a moment to stand and to say, I'm repenting. I'm turning back to Jesus. I'm not going to walk in that direction anymore. I'm going in a different direction. I want Jesus to heal me. I want him to make me whole. I want him to make me right. And I want you to do that. And I do not want you to give into the pride that says, if I stand, people will laugh at me. That's pride. That's arrogance. It's the only thing in between you and healing. And I want to invite you to stand and confess that here tonight, to hate your sin, to cling to what is good. And what is good is a someone. 
And that someone is the resurrected Jesus Christ. If tonight you are repenting of your sin, trusting in Jesus once more or for the first time, on three, would you stand to your feet? One, two, three. Stand up right where you are. Right where you are. All across this room. All across this room. To those of you standing right now, and to those of you that say, I should be standing, but I'm not, we love you, and here's what I want. After the service, there are gonna be people with name, lanyard bands. I'll be back there as well who can pray with you, who can encourage you. Maybe you just need to find someone in this room who you know is a solid Christian and just pray with them. There's no shame here. Jesus nailed that shame to the cross. He says, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are set free. I have given you a new name. That's what God wants for you. And when you repent and plant your foot in the ground and go this way, what you discover on the other side of it is joy. You discover healing, you discover wholeness. That's what God has for you tonight. So would everyone else stand with those folks who are standing tonight? Because I want to remind you that we never stand alone. We always stand together in a community, a people, a church that God is forming here. And tonight we're going to sing. We're going to worship our God who rescues and who saves. We're going to worship the God who heals those of us who are sickened by the virus and the curse of sin and says, I will make you whole. So we're going to sing this song right now. And here's what I want to invite everyone across this room to do. I want to invite you in this moment to lift up your hands to heaven, to lift up your hands to God and say, tonight, God, I trust you. I love you. I confess you. I call upon you. God, would you meet me in this moment? Would you heal me? So, Father, I pray all across this room that you would redeem and heal and reconcile and forgive, that you would welcome people into your family, and that you would redeem us from our sin. God, we trust you with wide open hands. We pray in Christ's name and all God's people said.